0: make our hearts still before you so that and to give our attentive hearing to your word we're convinced of a thousand things we need right now but convince us that what we need is to hear from God and we pray for every heart that is here we pray specifically even for the heart that is so overwhelmed by the circumstances and difficulties of life, that just breath is what they need. And we pray that your word would give them breath today and help them breathe and to know that there is a God who is intimately aware with every detail of their life and is deeply concerned. We pray that we would see your grace and your compassion and your love for us and be drawn to you through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Once upon a time, in a land of Israel, in a town called Bethlehem, a special baby was born. Now, many of you, of course, know this story, but this was no ordinary child. This was a very special baby boy. And to be honest, the birth of this baby in Bethlehem was a a miracle. Uh, For one, no one expected this child's dad to actually marry his mom. That was quite a a scandal, if you will, quite uh, amazing. Moreover, it was nothing short of a miracle, an act of God, for this woman, this mother, to actually get pregnant. God himself had to get involved for this baby to be born. And when this child in Bethlehem was born, those who heard of this news announced with great joy that today in Bethlehem, a Redeemer had been born now of course you know that this baby's name was okay that's the one-time Jesus is the wrong answer in church Obed Obed was the answer we were looking for right (laughs) Obed right Obed the grandfather of David the grandson of Naomi the son of a man named Boaz and his wife Ruth wrote, we get the joy of considering for a season The story tucked away in the first half of our Bibles that has shadows that remind us of a better story and a better son born in Bethlehem. But we get to give ourselves to a season of the study of the book of Ruth. We're in a new series that we're calling Redeeming Love as we look at this beautiful short story, four chapters long, tucked away in the first half of our Bibles in the Old Testament. And this story is the story of two ordinary women. One is Ruth, and the other is her mother-in-law, Naomi. Now, before we give ourselves to this book, what I want us to consider is why would we do that? Why would I ask you, why would we together give ourselves to studying through this book? Why would we give it a shot? Why am I asking you to give it a shot? As in, read through these four chapters this coming week. Read through it in the weeks to come. Consider it, study it, pray it. Why would you do that? For example, like if you're one of our guys... With no offense to the ladies, what are you supposed to do with the book of Ruth, right? It almost feels like you've been sneaked into a chick flick without knowing, and now you've got to endure this for the next few weeks, right? Or even for our ladies, would you hear me for a second? Some of you would be thinking, what is a modern woman supposed to do with an ancient book like Ruth? Right? You are very far removed from a day in a culture like the days of Ruth where a woman was going to the fields and harvesting grain, where her standing and her place in society was connected to the man that she was connected to. And without that, she had no standing or place in, conne- in society. And so what is a modern woman in 2015 supposed to do with an ancient book like Ruth? And so the question is, why study this book? Why give ourselves to it? There's the obvious answer, which is it's in the scriptures, right? And the obvious answer tells us, especially who are Christians who believe the scriptures, that God has told us that all scripture is profitable to us, that it's useful for correcting us and training us and rebuking us and equipping us for righteousness. And so it's in God's word. He has chosen to record this. And so we want to give ourselves to it. But I also want you to consider this, that Ruth in a lot of ways is different from many of the other books of the Bible in a way that I think will be very relevant to you. Ruth is different from some of the other books of the Bible. Here's what I mean by that. Think of when Hollywood makes a movie out of one of the books of the Bible, as, as is happening more and more. When Hollywood grabs a story from the Bible, it's always going to be a big-budget blockbuster film. It has to be, because the stories of the Bible are big-budget blockbuster stories. Right, If you're going to make Noah and get Russell Crowe to play that, you've got to somehow simulate an arc that's a football field long and a flood that covers the entire globe. So you need special effects and lights and bells and whistles. If you're going to make a movie of the book of Exodus, you've got to have signs and wonders and plagues and a sea that somehow parts. So there's bells and whistles and special effects and, and all the rest. Ruth on the other hand, would be like a low-budget indie film, right? You could basically tape Ruth with your iPhone. That's what Ruth is, (laughs) right? Because Ruth is very different. No special effects, no bells, no whistles, no signs, no wonders, no miracles, no prophets, no oracle, no voice even from God. It's, it's, It's a lot more ordinary, a lot more mundane, And in that way, I want to say it's very relevant because it's a lot like the life you and I live. It's a lot like the world you and I inhabit. My life, your life, doesn't have special effects and doesn't have bells and whistles. In fact, your life and my life is a lot more ordinary. Despite how much we desire it to be epic, think about it. What does your Sunday through Saturday look like? What does your Monday through Friday Your Monday through Fridays, you get up when the alarm rings and you go to work and you put food on the table. You might go on a date. You have marriage. You raise kids. You tuck them in at night. You prepare dinner. You bathe them. You feed them. You call your in-laws. You watch people you love get sick. There's joys and there's sorrows. There's life and there's death. It's just the normal, ordinary stuff of life. And if you're an ordinary person with an ordinary life, Perhaps one of the questions you've asked is, where is God in all of that? Where is God when I'm preparing dinner? And does that have any significance in the bigger story of the world? Where is God in the ordinary life, in the life without special effects or signs or wonders or oracles or voices from God? Perhaps if you're like me, you dream of this epic life where your every choice matters and ultimate things hang in the balance of what you do Monday through Friday. But often life is much more ordinary than that. And where is God in that life? Where is God in my ordinary life, in the life that sometimes goes well and many times doesn't and sometimes isn't at all shaping out to be the kind of life I had imagined life would be? Where is God in that? What I want you to hear is, if you're an ordinary person, then I want to say the book of Ruth is perfect for you because Ruth is going to show you how God is in all of that. How God is in all of that. Ruth is the story of two ordinary women who get caught up in the extraordinary purposes of God. Ruth is the story of two ordinary women who get caught up in the extraordinary purposes Plans and purposes of God, that God is working in the midst of their just normal relationship with each other, that that a a conversation that a woman has on a street corner has global impact, though at the moment she had no idea. And I want you to hear that. That's not an overstatement. A, A simple relationship between a mother in law and a daughter in law has impact on the entire world, on the entire history of salvation. These ordinary moments, these ordinary relationships that God is at work in. Ruth is the story how God is at work in good times and in bad times. And in fact, that's how the story starts, with some very bad times. You heard Danielle read the scripture for us. Let me just read it for you again so that it's fresh in your ears. This is Ruth 1, verses 1 through 5. This is what it says. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the other name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. From the very first words of the book of Ruth, you start with some really bad times. right? In fact, literally the very first words. The words start with in the days when the judges ruled. Now, in the days when the judges ruled, if you were in the Bible, if you had your Bible open to Ruth and you just looked left, you would be in the book of Judges, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. So if you went left from Ruth, you'd be in Judges. You'd literally be in the days when the judges ruled. And the days when the judges ruled were for Israel some of the darkest days of their history, right? So you've got Israel, the people of God, The Judges' ruling period is the Dark Ages for Israel. It's a time where nationally, spiritually, morally, they are a mess. Everything is wrong with Israel. They are neck deep in sin, and the entire book of Judges is just this Dark Ages for them. In fact, if you read through the book of Judges, you find that there's this cycle that happens over and over again, just repeated about 13 different times. And the cycle is basically this. The people sin. And because they sin, God lets them be oppressed, lets an oppressor come and take over them. And in their oppression, as they're miserable and dying, they cry out and repent, and God gives them a rescuer, a judge. He raises up a savior. And they respond to God's rescue by sinning. And then they get thrown into oppression, and they cry out, and a judge comes and rescues, and they respond by sinning. And then oppression comes. And that cycle happens over and over and over again. That's the story of Judges. The people sin, God rescues, they sin. The people sin, God rescues, they sin. I mean, it's national, moral, spiritual decline. In fact, so much so that the last words before the book of Ruth starts, the last words of Judges is this, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the spiritual climate of Israel at that point. That is that there's no standard to which everyone's bowing. There's no sense of we've got to do the right thing. Everyone just does whatever they think is right, right? It's, it's our modern slogan of you do you, right? You just do whatever thinks is right for you. Everybody did that. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And so it's in that time that the Ruth story starts. In the days, verse 1, when the judges ruled, it gets worse now, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So hear this. You've already got a dark time. It's the days when the judges ruled. And now famine hits the land. So severe that a man from Bethlehem, and don't miss this detail, takes his wife and his two boys and moves to the country of Moab. Now we hear that and it just sort of flies right over our head. What's the... There's nothing to even pause or linger over there, but not so there, not so then, right? We live in a transient world where people move all the time. We read that, and it's no big deal to us. In in fact, just just out of curiosity, how many of you here, would you raise your hand if you're not originally from Philly, (laughs) right? Look at that. Uh, so, So for us, you get up and you move. That's nothing. But in the text, when it says that a man from Bethlehem went to sojourn in Moab with his wife and his two sons, I mean, every reader would have paused at that. You know why? Because Israel was was the land. Right? If you're in the Old Testament, in fact, if you notice in verse 1, it says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And there's not even an explanation. Everybody knows what the land is. The land is Israel. And Israel is not like every other piece of property on the earth. Israel is the one spot on the planet where God dwells. Right? God had decided that Israel would be my chosen people. I'm going to dwell here. In fact, build me a tent and a tabernacle because my presence is going to be here in a way that it's not anywhere else in the world. And so for a man to move out of Israel, take his family out, was literally to leave God to literally leave the land where God was. So for a man from Israel, from Bethlehem, to take his wife and his sons to move out of Israel was pretty consequential. And moreover, where does he go? He goes to Moab. Of all the places on the planet to leave God's land to go to, he goes to Moab. Now, if you look at the background of Moab, the Moabites, the people of Moab, start in Genesis And the way they start is that there's a man named Abraham, Father Abraham, who's well-known. He's got a cousin named Lot. Well, Lot has this story, this this sordid episode in the Old Testament, where he's got two daughters who can't get married. And because they want children, they basically get their dad drunk and they sleep with their father. And in that incest is born Moab. Right. So out of all the places that Israel hated, they hated their half-cousins, Moab. And, and not only were the Moabites just wrong to begin with, if you read the book of Judges, the Moabites were one of those people that oppressed Israel. They were part of that cycle of oppression. So how bad do things have to be that a man from Bethlehem would grab his wife and his boys and go out of all places, out of Israel to Moab to seek refuge and survival? I mean, saying an Israelite moved to Moab is like saying that things got bad in America, and so you grabbed your wife and your kids and you boarded a plane for North Korea, or worse, Dallas, right? <laughs> you knew that was coming. I couldn't resist that one. That, that'll be the last one, right? How bad do things have to be that an Israelite is seeking refuge in Moab? And, and here's the thing. There's a number of ironies in the text, There's a number of things that are supposed to make your eyebrows sort of pop up. For example, Bethlehem is where they're from. Well, Bethlehem in the Hebrew, in the original language, means house of bread. Now, what an irony that is, that there's no bread in the house of bread. And that's supposed to make you think, what's going on in the story? That that this place, the house of bread, has no bread. And then it doesn't stop there. In fact, when you read verse 2, you're supposed to pick up on some more of the ironies. Look at verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Melon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So now if you read verse 2, you notice he's popping up names, right? The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife. The name of his two sons. That gets repeated over and over again because the author wants you to know, pay attention to these names. Okay, so if you do, here's what you find. Elimelech literally means God is my king or God is king or my father is king and so that's supposed to raise your eyebrow again could you imagine that my father is king has just left the king's land right and and moreover where does he go he goes to Moab mo which means who av which means dad or daddy so he's literally gone to who's your daddy that's where he's gone right i'm not making this up right and he's married to Naomi, who is pleasant. And they've got two sons, Melon and Kilion. Well, Malon and Kilion means sick and frail. Right? So you imagine, I mean, who names their... That's like you had two boys and you named one walking pneumonia and the other bronchitis. Right? So, so something about these two were maybe even from their young age sickly or frail, that they named them weak and frail. So here's how you could translate this passage. A pastor named Paul Miller, he says it this way. This would be the translation. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of the house of bread in Judah went to sojourn in the country of who's your daddy, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was my God is king, and the name of his wife pleasant, and the name of his two sons were weak and frail. Now, you, you only get to two verses in and you go, this is not going to turn out well, right? In fact, when you get to the end of verse 2, you find that they remained there in Moab. In fact, in verse 1, it was they had sojourned. They were just going to sort of dip in and out, right? The times were rough. They're just going to stop by Moab, see if they can wait out the famine and come back. But now, verse 2 tells us they remain there. That is that by the time this family is done, a decade will pass where they have moved from my God is king to Moab. Who is your father? And now things go from bad to worse. Think of this. Israel's in a spiritual mess. This is the days when the judges are ruling. Famine has hit the house of bread so that there's no bread in the house of bread. An Israelite family has gone to Moab for survival and things are going to get worse. Look at verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. So here's what the text is saying. My God is king fled death, and death caught him anyway. He ran to escape death, and death got him anyway in Moab. And what's the text supposed to tell you? How dark is the scene when God is king is dead? How bad have things become when God is king is dead? And Pleasant is now a widow and she's a single mom raising sick and frail in North Korea. That's what the text is saying by verse 2. And at this point you go, Naomi's life is hard. Right? But, but part of you goes, but at least she's got her boys. Right? Because you know the life of a single mom is hard. The life of a widow is unbearably hard. But the kids keep you going. Right? You can, you can, I've talked to Laura many times. And Laura's told me the story of her husband passing many decades ago. And when that happened, she's told both Shainu and I that she had four kids to raise. So there was no time to stop and to pause life. She had kids to raise. And so you imagine Naomi's in a similar place where she's got two boys to raise to get married. And at least life will go on that way right? And so that's what you see. In fact, life is going to go on. Verse 4, these, that's the two boys, took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Pause there for a second. So it's exactly what you'd hope for Naomi, right? She, she's lost her husband, but at least she's got her boys, and she's going to raise them, and they're going to get married, and that's exactly what happens. And you can almost picture Naomi. The wedding day comes, and she wishes so badly her husband were here. Or you can imagine the boys getting married at some point, wishing dad was here for them on this day as well. But at least they both get married. They start their families. And families means what? Well, pretty soon, you're going to have little feet running around. And so maybe Naomi's life is going to continue that way, that pretty soon there's going to be the pitter-patter of feet, except the text tells you 10 years pass. No kids. Now, if you've been married 10 years, you know the questions begin to start. When are you going to have kids? Are you guys having trouble having kids? And so the text is already hinting to you, things are bad here. They get worse because, verse 5, and both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So now, by the end of verse 5, Savmaru, would you picture Naomi with me for a second? Famine has driven her away from everything she knew. This one preacher named Alistair Begg, he says, just imagine sort of the conversation 10 years ago in Naomi and Elimelech's living room, right? As she's sitting as a widow in North Korea with now having buried her husband and now having buried her son and her other son with no grandchildren and no one left. Imagine her mind racing back to 10 years before or maybe before that when the famine hits, and you begin to wonder, was going to Moab his idea? And maybe if so, what's, Ruth, what's Naomi sitting there thinking? Maybe she's wrestling with, why on earth did I listen to him? Or, what if going to, to Moab was her idea? Then she's sitting there thinking, why on earth did he listen to me? Either way, she's sitting in Moab a widow without grandsons and now without sons as well. For a second, I need you to take Naomi off the pages of a book and think of her for a second as a real person. Imagine her life. Right? I, I went online and I took an online stress survey, sort of a life events survey of what that would mean for you, right? They've got all these surveys of, of here are these life events and what that would put your sort of level of stress at and what that even might mean for you physically, emotionally, mentally, right? And they've got these categories, right? Certain life events. You lose a job, it means this many points. You, you, you lose a loved one, it means this many points. And they've got these sort of categories. Zero to 80 means, you know, you should take care of yourself. 80 to 160 means you need to really watch out. You've got a good chance of getting sick. And so on it goes. And then 300 or more points essentially means you are about to break down any moment. You need to, like, check yourself in. 80% chance that you are going to get ill in the very near future. I took a test just imagining that I was Naomi, just checking off the boxes. Very conservative. First question itself, you lose your partner, your husband or your wife, 100 points. And then I went on and just checked. I mean, she was at 350, 360. Meaning, today, if she was here, Naomi would be someone you'd grab and say, you need to to check yourself in. You're this close from breaking down. Naomi would be the kind, I don't think it would be too far-fetched to say, if she were in our day, we'd wonder if she had days where she didn't want to get out of bed. In our day, we'd wonder if she was this close to struggling with depression or much worse. Naomi's life had fallen apart. And and here's the thing. Savmar Road, I imagine some of you right now would almost imagine I need to take that test and find out what my score would be because my life feels like Ruth 1, verses 1 to 5. And I'd imagine, hear hear me Savmar Road, I'd imagine most of us, I'd even want to say all of us, are either on the way out of or into Ruth 1, verses 1 to 5. Right? We're we're either coming out of Ruth 1, 1 to 5, or headed into Ruth 1 to 5, or right in the middle of Ruth 1, 1 to 5. And if that's you, here's the question. What is a believer... What is someone who's trying to follow God supposed to do when life feels like it's falling apart? What's a believer supposed to do when life feels like it's falling apart? And here's the answer I want you to hear. You're supposed to lament. You're supposed to lament. That is, you're supposed to mourn and wail and grieve. And I want you to hear this. This might be surprising for some of us because I think what we would imagine we're supposed to do when life kicks us in the teeth is that we're supposed to overcome. We're supposed to rise up. We're supposed to stand. We're supposed to respond with some heroic spiritual thing. And I'll tell you, all of that may have its place. But if you hear me say one thing today, would you hear me hear this? Say this, road When life is really hard, You have permission from the Bible to tell God that life is really hard. If you hear me say one thing today, would you hear that? When life is kicking you in the teeth, you have permission from the Bible to tell God that life is kicking you in the teeth. You have freedom and permission from the scriptures to tell God that life is really hard. That is to say, you have freedom to lament. You have freedom to mourn, to wail, to grieve. Let, let me read you what Ruth says when life has kicked her in the teeth. Ruth 1, verse 13, she's talking to her daughters and she says, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Do you hear that? Don't miss what she said. It is exceedingly bitter to me right now that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, an Israelite would have known what the hand of the Lord could do, right? Joshua, Judges, before that is Israel, Exodus. I mean, the hand of the Lord was what went out against Egypt. And when it did, it wrecked shop. The hand of the Lord is what brought down the plagues and destroyed the enemies, so much so that Ruth is saying, now the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. My life feels like it's on the receiving end of God's hand. And what's it like if what he could do to Egypt, to an enemy, is now how he's treating me? The hand of the Lord has gone out against me, Ruth, Naomi says. Or or listen to Ruth 1, verse 21. She says, I went away full. Right? She's thinking about her life. She's a proud woman with two sons in Israel. Right? No daughter. She's got sons. She's got a husband. She's what you would want to be. And she says, I went away full and the Lord, the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Do you hear what she says? She says, why call me pleasant anymore? The Lord himself has testified against me. So she's saying, not only is he my judge ruling over me, it's like we're on trial and he is standing in the witness seat against me. He's testifying against me. He's my adversary. He's my opponent. He's my enemy. And he is the one who has brought calamity upon me, Naomi says. That's what my life feels like right now. Now, I don't know about you, but when you hear that, when I hear Naomi talk like that, everything in me wants to say, Naomi, you can't talk like that. You're not allowed to say that. Right? Naomi is uncensored in her suffering, and it is very unsettling for us. It makes us nervous. Right? We, we want to do everything we can to say, quick, someone sit Naomi down and give her a theology book and inform her that she cannot talk that way. Right? I know what I'd do. I would sit Naomi down and I'd say, listen, Naomi, I would need you to know though your life feels out of control, God is sovereign, Naomi. God is in control, Naomi. God is in control of all the things in your life. And though your life feels out of control, God is sovereign. But here's the thing, said Marot. Well-meaning though I would be, here's the irony. Naomi is not struggling because she has bad theology. In fact, she's struggling precisely because she has good theology. Would you catch this? Naomi doesn't have a bone in her body that doesn't know that God is in control. In fact, the reason she's struggling is because she's fully convinced God is in control. Naomi has a complete belief in the sovereignty of God, which is why she's complaining and wrestling with him. She has every confidence that God is in control. So the pain in her life is not because she doesn't know God is sovereign. It's precisely because she does believe he's sovereign. She has the courage to say, the Almighty is the one who has brought calamity upon me. And what she's wrestling with is, I know God is completely in control. And I know he's good. And my life has fallen apart. So make sense of that. And she's living in that spot. And she assigns to God all the things that has happened in her life. In that way, I want you to hear, she's like another sufferer in the Bible. Right there, There's a man named Job, a righteous man, a good man. In one day, everything he owns, including his six kids, are wiped out. When that happens, and the text will even tell you Satan did that, Job responds by saying, the Lord gave and the Lord took away. So so notice that, Job assigned to God as the one who let these things happen in my life, as the cause behind it, as the one who took these things. And the very next verse says, and in all these things, Job did not sin. Meaning, he wasn't speaking out of turn when he said, God allowed this into my life. God is sovereign over the suffering in my life. In the same way, Naomi is saying, the Lord has brought calamity upon me. And I don't know about you, but I would take Naomi's theology any day of the week. Because when suffering does happen, what we often do is we try to get God off the hook. We sort of play PR for God because it's kind of embarrassing, right? You have a good God who's completely in control. Bad things have happened. How do you explain that? And so we say things like, well, God never meant for that to happen. We mean comfort. God never intentioned for that to happen. But hear me, are, are you comforted by the thought of a really sweet God who wants bad things to stop happening to you, but it's just powerless from keeping it from happening? The Bible doesn't comfort you that way. The Bible instead says, you don't have a powerless God who wants to stop bad things, but is unable, but rather a powerful God who is at work even in the midst of suffering. The scriptures say, Naomi says, God is good. God is sovereign. Bad things do happen, and Naomi is living in the tension of that. What do I do? Because behind the famine, and behind the death of Elimelech, and behind the ten years of infertility, and behind the death of Malon and Kilion is God. And Naomi knows it. And the truth, said is we don't know what to do with a Naomi. And, and maybe some of you are the Naomi right now, and the people around you don't know what to do with you. you. You're not healing up fast enough. You're not getting over this quick enough. And we don't know what to do in that tension. And so we respond with some pithy answer as best as we can to try and cut that tension. And if we can't get rid of the pain, then some of us respond by getting rid of God. Right? How many people do you know when life has fallen apart and none of the answers make sense, therefore say, then God is out and throw away God? What Naomi had the courage to do and the men and women of the Bible had the courage to do is neither chuck God nor hide their pain, but rather go to God with their pain. Because God's not saying to you this morning, get over it. God is saying to you, come to me with it. I want you to hear that. He's not saying to you this morning, get over it. He's saying to you, come to me with it. Because the answer is not to chuck God, nor to hide your pain, but to go to God with your pain. And what that simply means is lament. The Bible says you are able to lament. Lament, weep, mourn, grieve, wail before God. And I I tell you, if you read the scriptures, you find we've got a long history before us. Of men and women of God who lamented. Let me just show you a couple of quick verses. Moses has this scene in Exodus where God's called Moses to set the people free. He says, All right, I'll do it. He goes and talks to Pharaoh. Rather than anything good coming, Pharaoh says, Get lost. If you've got time to complain, well, I'm going to make everyone's life harder. Okay? So Moses' rescue mission isn't going so well. This is how he responds. Moses says in Exodus 5.22, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Would you pause there? Did you hear what came out of Moses' mouth? O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. And everything in me wants to go, Somebody has to tell Moses he can't talk like that. Did you hear what he just... He said, you, God, have done evil. That's wrong. And you, since you called me, have not done anything about delivering your people. And rather than condemning Moses, I want you to hear, Scripture records this word for you to read. So that by chapter 6, there's not even a word of rebuke. Instead, God's only response is, Hang tight, Moses, and watch what I'm about to do. Can you imagine a God so gracious that you can go to him with your honest complaint and he's not going to condemn you, but instead has recorded this in the scriptures to give you language when life kicks you in the teeth? Let me read you another. Psalms. The Psalms are a book of prayers and songs that God's people are In fact, when you don't know what to say, the Psalms are the place you should go to know what to say, to give language. 150 Psalms. Scholars say one-third of them are laments. Would you you catch that for a second? Out of 150 Psalms, one-third of them, 50 of them are put in there to give you language to lament. Let me show you one of them. Psalm 13 Psalm 13 starts with, to the choir master, a psalm of David. Now, I want you to know, the English Bible didn't put that there. That's actually in the original language. That's how it was written. And what that clues us into is, this was meant as what? A song for God's people. Because if the very first words are saying, to the choir master, a psalm or song of David, that is, this is what the people of God should sing. Now, consider that. Here is a worship song for God's people. I don't have a tune for this, so I can't lead you in a song. Would you do me a favor and let's read these first two verses together, okay? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? I think when you even hear one another say, Could you, when's the last time, Submaro, we sing songs like this in church? But the Psalms are in the scriptures to say, God's people have permission to come into worship and sing together, How long, O oh Lord? How long are you going to forget me? And everything in me wants to give you a theology, but you can say, No, 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 God doesn't forget anything, He's omniscient. You need to know the theology of omniscience. And yet, in this, he says, how long are you going to forget me? How long are you going to hide your face from me? The people of God are invited to lament. To lament to God together. So here's what I'm saying to you, Seb You have permission from the Bible to not get over your pain and not to chuck God in your pain, but to go to God with your pain. And the scriptures are saying that's what lamentation is. That's what lamenting is. Now, does Naomi do this perfectly? Let me just say this and then we'll be done. Does Naomi do this perfectly? No. When I've read the commentators, they're sort of split about Naomi. Some of them go, she is bitter and just voicing things that we ought never to say. And some of them go, she is so godly and a saint, she's a female Job, and we should say everything she says. And I think the reality is probably somewhere in the muddy middle, right? Because the truth is, you and I know what it's like, that even with our best moment, there's some mud in it. There's some stain in it. Nothing we do seems to be perfect. And so is there some bitterness in Naomi? Absolutely. We know that because she says, stop calling me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. And there is a danger. There's a danger in pain that if you don't go to God with it, and if you're talking to everyone else about it, then your pain can become a breeding ground for bitterness. So hear that. There's the danger that if you are in pain and you go to everyone but God with that pain, then it can become a breeding ground for bitterness. One author said it this way, bitterness is a wound that's nursed or a wound that's rehearsed and nursed, right? Right? And so Naomi has this low-level bitterness, and you ought to be watchful of that, right? If I asked you, are you bitter, then maybe some of you would say, no, there's no bitterness in neon lights in my heart. But there might be this low-level sort of background hum of bitterness in your heart. So watch for that. In fact, one one author says it this way, a man named Tremper Longwind, in thinking about Naomi, says, there are many examples from the Psalms where there is a healthy raising of the fist to God. There are also examples of unhealthy raising of the fist, notably in the wilderness. The difference is that in the healthy, they are speaking to God, not to others. Because they are praying to God as they accuse him, there's a sense of hope. So is Naomi like the psalmist or like the Israelites in the wilderness? Right? And that's the tension. Is she just speaking to others and growing bitter or is she speaking to God? Whatever the answer might be, I want you to hear this. That even despite her bitterness and her lamentation, the way God chooses to respond to Naomi is by sending Ruth into her life. He doesn't condemn her. He almost lets her grieve as much as she can. My life has fallen apart. I'm empty. I have nothing left. And God's response to that is going to be, I'm going to send Ruth into your life. So that by the end of the story, people are going to say, isn't Ruth better for you than seven sons? I promise I'll answer you, Naomi. Not with all the things you want to say, but I've heard your lamentation. What I want you to hear this morning is simply this. Don't let that stop you from seeing lament. If you're here this morning and your life is falling apart and you are in the thick of suffering or you are near a dear loved one who is in the thick of suffering, What does Ruth 1, verses 1 to 5 say to you this morning? Ask the Spirit to show you, what do you want me to latch on to? Maybe I need to hear, God is sovereign in the midst of my suffering. He is not powerless right now. He is at work, even in the midst of this. Or maybe you just need to hear that the Bible is giving you permission to hear, God's not saying to you this morning, get over it, but is saying to you, come to me with it. Lament. Don't go others and not to me and grow bitter. Be Godward in your complaint. That's what the laments are. They are Godward in direction as they pour out honestly the pain of life. As they say, God, my life is kicking me in the teeth and I feel like you're behind this. Lament before the Lord. And as you do, here's the last thing I want you to hear. You don't have a God who condemns you for lamentation. In fact, you have a God who joins you in lamenting. Would you hear me? You have a God who actually joins you in lamenting. Because the the news of the Bible is we were sinful. And God loved us enough to come down in the person of Jesus Christ. He sent his son. And Jesus lived a perfect life. And yet because of his love for us, God let Jesus' life fall apart. Did you hear me all the sin of the world all the mess and junk of the world fell on Jesus and God literally light let Jesus life fall apart. He kicked Jesus life in the teeth betrayal in his life every moment orchestrated to the point that God sovereignly allowed his son on the cross and when Jesus life had fallen apart and he reached the darkest hour to the point that even God had turned his back on his son. What does Jesus do? He reaches back into the Psalms and finds a lament, Psalm 22, verse 1, to give him language to speak in that moment so that he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Rather than condemning you in lamentation, you have a Savior who has joined you in it who knows your pain better than you could possibly imagine and is saying to you this morning, I'm not telling you get over it. I'm telling you come to me with it. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to minister to us now to take your living word which is active And apply it to our heart so that we would not hear the word of man but hear the voice of God. And we might hear the gentle invitation even right now from a God who has joined us in our pain. Inviting us to come. Come to me and bring your lamentation. Bring your complaint. Bring even your accusation. Come to me with it. And we find a God who says, come to me and I will give you rest. So we pray that you would heal many hearts today as we come to you. And we do so in your son. In his name we pray.